King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. They brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed round his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed, don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve problems. Call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed round your neck and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, May you keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your Majesty, the Most High God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. 
But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene mene tekel parson. Here is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the scales and found wanting. Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. This is the word of the Lord. God is a God who woos and warns. Sometimes you get a wooing text and sometimes you get a warning text. Sometimes the text will display God's grace. Sometimes the text will display his judgment. Sometimes we see the kindness of God. Sometimes we see the sternness of God. In both cases, when these dimensions of God are seen, the motive and the aim is still the same. God's word to us in scripture is motivated by love and compassion and its aim is that a person turn to him from sin. Now, I say that at the beginning as a reminder that warning texts in the Bible are okay. Listen to Jesus' own words in Luke 13, 1-5. It says, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they had this, because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, 
you will all likewise perish. That is a word of warning from Jesus, and his aim is repentance, which means that his aim is restoration, because repentance is about turning from sin to God. So restoration is the aim. I say that at the start here because I don't want us to forget as we come to this text that I think functions primarily as a warning. I think the big idea in chapter 5 is that God opposes the proud. Now, how can we see that? Well, if we just go back to chapter 4... And the last word in chapter 4, this has happened a couple of times with the stories in Daniel, you get uh, just off the back of um, Nebuchadnezzar having a dream about the statue that gets hit by the rock and crumbles. The very next chapter starts out, Nebuchadnezzar made a great big idol. And here in chapter 4, we've just had Nebuchadnezzar has been humbled. And right at the end there, we get these words by Nebuchadnezzar. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And those words can kind of be read in two ways. That's either a good thing or it could be a, it could be a bit of a warning. Those who walk in pride, he, beware, he's able to humble. Or maybe it's for those who are looking that somebody else might be humbled. Those who are proud, God can actually humble them. But we don't see, but, but with that there, kind of just off the back of this, um, sorry, just starting this story in chapter 5, then we move into King Belshazzar himself. And the reason why I think that this text functions as a warning is because of the tone and feel of the way the narrative comes at us. I think there's an ominous note that hangs in the air right from the beginning and it creates a sense of uneasiness straight from the word go. And we see that in verse 4. Look what it says. As they drank wine, so, so 1 to 3 sets up the scene, right? Belshazzar, he, he gets, he's drinking with all his, his, his people, great big feast, um, and that he calls in the... Uh, the, the, the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God. So we suspect right away, this is a bit of a risky thing to do, knowing the God of the Bible. But then in verse 4 we read, As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. And where have we heard those words before? We read those words in chapter 2. Because in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And in his dream, he saw a large statue made of diverse materials. It had a head of gold. It had chest and arms of silver. had a belly and thighs of bronze. had feet both of iron and clay. But you see, in the dream, a little rock, a rock not cut by human hands, comes and strikes the feet of the statue, it comes crashing down, breaks into tiny little breadcrumbs and gets blown away by the wind. And so here in this story, the alert reader is meant to pick up on, ah, 
That's an interesting little echo coming through there. And it's not just those materials either. It's the hand, you see, because the rock that knocks down the statue is cut out by, cut out by no human hand. And here, in verse 5, if you look there, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared. Right. That's strange. So this ominous note just sets the tone in chapter 5. But then the tension mounts in verses 5 to 9 as Belshazzar, with Belshazzar's inability to control his own body and his magician's inability to interpret what's happening. So the king, reading in verse from verse 5b, the king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. (coughs) So this moment has come, this hand has appeared, what is it? Now Belshazzar is, is incapable. He's not able to control his body. His interpreters can't interpret the, the, the phenomena. And so then the next thing that builds suspension is the prolonging of the interpretation. So we're waiting for the interpretation. Next, the Queen Mother arrives on the scene and it appears for a moment that we might have a little bit of relief. She comes in and says, you know, tells in effect, uh, Belshazzar, tells Belshazzar that there's a man in the kingdom named Daniel and he's got skills. He might be able to interpret the dream for you. I think it's, uh, so I think it's worth noting in uh, uh, verse 12 what she says about Daniel and how she describes him. She says, Daniel, dot, 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 was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve difficult problems. Belshazzar's confronted with a problem. The queen's come in now. Maybe a little bit of, a little bit of ease from the tension. Maybe, maybe Daniel can solve the problem. And that's exactly what Belshazzar is in. He's he set himself up against the God of heaven and God is on the move. And as, this, as the interpretation... Um, uh, Uh, is prolonged, the suspense is heightened. It's as though the court has been called in. Daniel doesn't actually go straight in with the interpretation either. Even once Daniel gets called in and Belshazzar says to him, you know, you, you're the guy that can solve problems, Daniel doesn't straight away give them, giving them, give him, uh, doesn't start straight away to give him the interpretation. Instead, he starts telling Belshazzar about what he's done wrong. It's as though the court has been called in and as the defendant stands waiting for the verdict, before declaring guilty or not guilty, a long list of the offence is spelled out and the suspense is killing him. 
And so as Daniel recounts Belshazzar's attitude to the God of Israel, the interpretation of the dream is still hanging suspended there in the narrative. And a couple of other things about the narrative as a whole that bring this same effect across. You get the parallel between, and contrast between Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 and Belshazzar here in chapter 5. It's not just <coughs> uh, Nebuchadnezzar who's been humbled, but now we've got Belshazzar being confronted. Also, the brevity of the whole scene. I missed it first time I read it, but this event starts at, you know, in the evening, as it were, with a feast, and the whole thing is ended by the end of the night. Look at verse 30 at the end of the chapter. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. The whole chapter just takes a span of a few hours. The speed at which God's judgment falls on Belshazzar is a jarring wake-up call to the sleepy. One night, one minute he's partying, the next minute he's dead. Because our lives are just a breath and we are fragile human beings. I could recount a number of stories of people who, wake up in, who woke up in the morning never for a minute dreaming of what would happen to them later that day. I remember one time in London, it turned out that just down the road from us, a helicopter fell out of the sky in the morning, on the morning commute, and landed on a bus, a commuter bus. So you wake up, you brush your teeth, you're fretting because you're late to work. You're still wondering about whether or not you've got the right outfit on. And the next minute, you're face to face with your maker. This is real life. I'm not making up a story. This chapter, with the way that it moves so quickly warns us that a day of counting and weighing is coming for all of us. And it could come at any moment. So have we humbled ourselves before him? Not only so, but the swiftness of the ending of this chapter also leaves the reader with something sober to reckon with. So the, the space that Belshazzar's kind of story takes in time is not long. But the chapter itself comes to an abrupt end. Look in verse 29. So we get, we, we, we've got this long process from the beginning. We want to know what's happened. This long process. We, we have to wait all the way up to uh, verse uh, 25 before, verse 26 before we get the interpretation. And then we get the, all we get is you get the interpretation and then the very next thing, then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, he's exalted, and then verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain and Darius the Mede takes over the kingdom. 
End of story. Just like that. And the curtain closes. It's like one of those films that you watch that's been building this... The suspense has been building as you've been watching. You've felt an ominous note from the beginning and you have a hunch that things are not going to go well for the main character. You watch right to the end to see what will happen and then when you get there, it just comes screeching to a halt. And what you feared happens. The screen goes blank and you're left there with your thoughts. And you think, whoa, life is heavy. That's what's happening here. We've just come off the back of Nebuchadnezzar who lifted himself up. God humbled him. And we've got this kind of parallel story now of Belshazzar. And Belshazzar's story is a story that sobers us. Belshazzar is judged by God. He's counted and weighed. He's found wanting. And he's ended just like that. And I think that's the response we're supposed to feel in this chapter. It sobers us because it calls all people to account. You see, because Belshazzar is not Jewish. It's not just Jewish people who are accountable to the God of the Bible. And it's not just Christians who are accountable to Jesus. God is calling all people to account and God will weigh every single person on the planet. Belshazzar, as a Babylonian king, does not have Judaism as his preferred religion. Everybody is to honour the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible is their creator. Note what Daniel says about Belshazzar in verse 23. But you did not honour the God who holds in his hand your breath, your life, and all your ways. You did not honour the Creator. It is your duty to honour him because he is your Creator, he is your Maker. So this chapter sobers us, this chapter warns us, and this chapter is an appeal to us. As I said in the beginning, I think the function of the warning is to create repentance. I think you're supposed to read into this, uh, as, you, as, you, as you look in and you read the story, perhaps as unbelievers listen into this story as well. There's supposed to be a, a warning and an appeal Repent, humble yourself. Turn away from your not honouring God ways. So what about now? What about this side of the cross? Well, I think the warning still stands. Listen to Isaiah chapter 2, verse 12 to 21. For the Lord of hosts has a day... Against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, 
and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, this is non-Jewish people, and against all the beautiful craft and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day and the idols shall utterly pass away and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. That day is still hanging. But you see, just as people here, you see, they will run to the enter the caves of the rocks. There's hope for us. Because they're not the only rocks that you can run to, there's another rock. God often is presented in Scripture as a rock. For example, as Psalm 71.3, Be to me a rock of refuge. When you hear that word, it's, do, it's not run from God, it's run to God. The only refuge from God is God. Run to the rock cut by no human hand to Jesus Christ the cornerstone you see because it's tempting to read ourselves out of chapter 5 Belshazzar the proud But if our lives were considered apart from Christ, where would we be in chapter 5? Where would we be if all of a sudden, apart from Christ, the writing on the wall appeared for our lives? What would happen if God counted and weighed our lives? Would he find us wanting? Have we lived God-honouring lives? Apart from Christ... Do our lives reflect a life of thankfulness and praise fitting to the creator for every breath, every single thing done to honour him, every single thing done with thankfulness, with mindfulness of God our maker, with humility and dependence aware that we don't wake up but for him. Treating all of his stuff with respect, knowing, man, this is, these are God's people. God made, these are God's people that God made. This is God's stuff. I know 
If I was counted and weighed, I would be found wanting. And so the beauty of Christianity is that Jesus Christ has been tried for us. Jesus' life was count, Jesus Christ was counted and weighed. And his scales were perfect. Always honoured the Father. Always did exactly what the Father said. Not for one minute saw his own glory. Perfect. Never lifted himself up against the God of heaven. But in John chapter 19 we read that Jesus Christ is judged. He stands before Pilate, he stands before the world. And he's judged as guilty. He's condemned. So as 2 Corinthians says, as we come into close... For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This text warns us, teaches us that God opposes the proud, but because of Jesus Christ, we can see that not only does God oppose the proud, He gives grace to the humble who will humble themselves who will say let Jesus Christ be counted in my place. Let him be weighed not me. And let judgment fall upon him. And so now no longer we don't have to fear death. We don't have that same sense of fear that if the hand came into our life one night and said, and it was, it's your time to be weighed. We wouldn't have that same, that that same terror wouldn't strike us. We'd just say, Christ. Christ alone. He lived the honour in life that I should live. I'm guilty. He lived the life I should live. He stands condemned in my place. That's the free gift of God. Let's pray. Father, if not for Christ... And some of us here will know that we have lived this way ourselves, dishonouring you with our lives, treating you with contempt. And that if you had come to us on one of those nights, like Belshazzar, we would be found wanting. And we would have nowhere to run. Our knees would be knocking and we would have nothing got. Thank you that you sent Christ for us to stand in our place.
so that on that day when we do stand before you, we won't be found wanting. We'll be found in him. And so I pray, God, that, uh, that your work uh, in this text would humble us, would sober us, would cause us to pray for our unbelieving friends and neighbours, and that we would live in light of the day knowing that one day you will bring low all that is proud and you alone will be exalted in that day. God, please, may we live in light of that day. In Jesus' name, amen.